Hello, I'm Nation, and welcome back to the Hive Nation podcast. Each week, we have leading experts in personal and professional development share their journeys and expertise to help you connect, engage, grow, evolve. Now, here's JB to introduce today's guest. Hey, thanks, Greg. Uh, today, we've got another very interesting guest uh, on the program. Uh, today's guest is uh, Mr. Josh Hagen. Uh, Josh is the uh, high performance coach and director of development for Judo Sask, um, based out of Saskatoon here. Uh, former uh, ex-director of the Northwest Territories uh, Judo Association and the co-founder of Matsura, Matsura Canada. And Matsura Canada is a, uh, they make geese and, and clothing and stuff surrounding around judo. And I'm sure Josh can touch on that as well. Uh, Josh is also a, a former, former international judo competitor. Uh, and a on-air analyst for CBC Sportsnet and TSN for the Tokyo Olympics, which is super cool because I always wanted to do that. I think I could always do that. I think I could be one of those guys that could just spell stuff off. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I It's one of those things I thought I was more likely to become an Olympian than a commentator for the Because <laughs> like, it's just like, how do you even do it? Like, I have no idea, you know? It's just like, it doesn't even seem like an option on the table. So to get to do it, for one Olympic so far, uh, was just like a pretty special treat. That way. So was like the powder room the most uh, best part of the? <laughs> 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 no, but it, one thing that was interesting, like I didn't get to go to Tokyo, um, so almost all because of COVID. So almost all of the commentators were in one building in Toronto, which meant every day you're running into the Alexander Depatis and the Donovan Baileys and the Steve Armitages every day. Super cool. And so yeah, that was pretty. Wicked. Yeah, very very cool. So uh, I want to start this off, Josh, by asking, and we talked about this off camera, but I think it's a really good uh, topic. So you're a big baseball guy. Yeah. I'm a baseball nerd. Yeah. Uh, uh, huge Giants fans. Go Giants. Uh, Buster Posey, Barry Bonds. We have our own opinions on that, Josh. But uh, <laughs> the uh, the uh, the whole thing around baseball and data and the big uh, data book here that we right. got here, uh, and you've tied in. Baseball data and judo as uh, as value or as a sport value. Why don't you explain to the listeners as to how you see that? Right. So basically, I look at baseball, and when someone does something well, like we don't need to reinvent the wheel. So baseball again, they started analytics really in about 1876 is when the uh, batting average became a stat, which is an easy calculation, but it's still just not a counting stat. Right. And as a reference, the NBA didn't start counting rebounds until about 1976. So that shows you the variance in like when, how they see value. I don't even know with soccer, when I was a kid playing soccer, people didn't even talk about assists. They only talked about goals. Yeah. Like how crazy is that to think of it that way? So when you love a sport, we often think it's extra complex and extra difficult. And I always think sport's just sport. So let's look at other sports as references and try to copy the things they do. A few things that baseball does that are fascinating is they own their own minor league system. So when they draft somebody, they don't just get them at the end when they're a finished product. They often get them from high school. Then they put them in low A, then high A, then double A, and then triple A before they come to the major leagues. And then they put them in fall leagues and they direct them the whole way. So they take a 16, 17 year old kid and they start developing their career with what they see their trajectory rather than catching them at 20, mm -hmm. 21 and being like, oh, this is the product. So that's fascinating to me is like how far back they develop athletes. And then the other thing is, is they take the smartest people in the world, MIT grads, things like this, and then they try to find value, create statistics to find value of how they can be better. We can't do that in the budget of judo, but there's ideas that we can sort of try to follow to do that. That's super cool because they do take like those kids 
and they move them uh, through the system and they'll pick a kid, for example, he's maybe a catcher, yeah. but they'll actually change him to shortstop right. because he's more val- his arm is more valuable at shortstop because he's a better hitter, whatever that right. case may be. And of course, as a catcher, you get, you know, you get beat up pretty good. Yeah. And so they want to protect him for the longevity of his career. So they'll right. move him from catcher to, and yet there's still some really good catchers, AKA yeah. Buster Posey, right. who have had, who made a great career out of it right. and won three world series uh, in, 10, 4, 12, and 14. But are anyway, fan, uh, are you a fan, JB? I have possibly <laughs> But in, in even like, um, uh, what was the one guy? Michael, he was the catcher for the Dodgers. He had a super long career. Started in the early 90s. Um, oh, he was like a power-hitting catcher. Anyways, there was a GM for the Dodgers in the early 90s. Piazza? Mike Piazza. Unbelievable hitter as a catcher. And catchers that can hit, that's a pretty rare breed. The yep. Buster Poseys. Um, there's a, a horrible trade the Jays made. I can't think of his name right now, but the Jays traded away a catcher for an outfielder that's athletic and a super young guy. Gabriel Moreno. Yeah, horrible trade. Made no sense to me at horrible all. Trade. You have a, a super athletic catcher that can hit. Those guys are super rare. And steal bags. Yeah, um, he's, he's, and if you need, maybe he can play shortstop. He can. Right? You just don't trade that guy. Sure. But what the one thing that was interesting to me, I remember hearing, was the GM at the time in the early 90s of the Dodgers started looking at people's eyesight. So the average major league player's vision is like 22, 20, 23, 20, something like this. So he started looking at draft picks and as a way to break the rule was like if they have great eyesight because you need to recognize a pitch early. And Mike Piazza had something like 24, 20 vision or tw- some crazy thing. Before he becomes a major leaguer, this GM's gone. But with that eyesight, he can recognize the pitch a lot faster. The pitch is coming in at 95 miles an hour. Pitch recognition's huge. He becomes a star player. One of the best catchers ever. So to me, it's like, there's value in this funny way of like what someone can find interesting. Um, So that like stood out to me as like. And yet it's funny in that same breath, he got traded to the Mets uh, for as a prospect. Right. With over really playing for the Dodgers. I mean, he played a couple years for the Dodgers, but right. got traded, and his best years were in New York. Yeah. And yet, you know, like the, the guy who was all big on him on in in uh, Los Angeles yeah. trades him away, ends up trading him away anyway because they needed uh, pitching for... Uh, right, and there's like pressure that you need to perform earlier, and then you're not letting the development of those players happen, you know, so... And so where do you see that stuff? Like, so how do you, how do you translate that into judo? How do you translate that into a, a, like a, an on-mat uh, competitive sport like that? So there's a few things. Like uh, one reference that I love to make is American football. So um, in judo, we often train really, really hard on the skills that we have. And then we play the game. It's sort of hard to, if you haven't done a lot of judo, it's sort of like we just go and play. So the reference that I have is, let's say you're the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. And I'm uh, Josh's gym. And we go to play a football game. We do a huddle for offense, and you say to your guys, and I might even be a better player, I might even be a better quarterback than you, but you say to your guys, okay, you're going to run this post pattern, and you're going to run this cross pattern, you're going to do a stop and go. And I say to my guys, guys, look at this. I got a cannon. You get open, I'll find you. Who's going to win that game? You're going to win, even if I'm a better quarterback, because we're prepared to run things in a planned way. And in judo, that's a reference that we can take. We don't need to just play and hope that it works. We need to say, I'm going to plan for every single exchange. When you do that, I mean, it's really small sample size. But if I do a play, like I want to get to this technique and it's unsuccessful, I can now adjust for the next exchange. Whereas if I play a match where, or, you know, we think in goal setting, I want to be an Olympic champion. Okay. Yeah, I'm just going to do it. 
we need some smaller goals, right? You do. So same thing. I want to win a tournament. Okay, well, let's get smaller. I need to win a match. Okay, if you need to win a match, what do you have to do? Okay, I need to win exchanges. So that's an example where judo hasn't, in my experience, and most athletes that I know, I was just talking to Tristan about it last mm-hmm. night, a coach in uh, Regina, is we're trying to win big goals without small goal setting and or planning in the same way. So that's very business-oriented or sport-oriented is set those small goals. Like it's pretty hard to get to work every day if you don't get dressed first. You know, like mm-hmm. those little things, those little victories. Mm-hmm. And then those little victories gain momentum and then all of a sudden the big goals are getting achieved. You don't become an Olympic athlete in four years Contrary to what people say, you're an Olympic athlete because you did a lifetime of sport, you know, and so you need a lot of little victories to get there. We always talk about it's a stack of wins, right? So, right. you know, if you want to consider your very first win of the day, uh, uh, make your bet. Right. That's your first win of the day, right? right? And right. then you just keep going from there, right? And right. it's just, it's, a, it's very much the same idea as you just keep going on. Like everything is just another win, another win, another right. win. You made a phone call, you talked to Josh, you talked to whoever, yeah. you know, that's just, you just keep yeah, one thing I say at the dojo is like at the end of the session, I'll often have the kids close their eyes and just say, picture one thing you did successfully during class today. Just something you did successfully and play it on repeat. Maybe the thing that you did successfully was show up. That's it. Great. You win. You came to the dojo and you didn't want to. Yep. Like days when you're feeling the worst and you're, and you're unmotivated, those can be the most productive days because your expectations are very low. When you come in feeling great, those are often my worst days. Because yep. you come in feeling great, you're like, everything I do today is going to be a home run. And then you have one let down, let down and it crumbles. Mm-hmm. Whereas you come in, you're like, I don't want to go today. I had a bit of a cough. <laughs> I had a terrible conversation <laughs> with my ex yesterday. <laughs> and then anything that goes well, you're like, gold. It's golden. You know, I ate lunch and it was decent. Yeah. Win. I thought I, I, thought I was going to be vomiting all day. You know, so yeah. like... Anything like that is like perspective's huge. Yeah. And I think one of the things that can ruin us more than anything is expectations. The Matrix 2 is the worst movie ever because it's the second Matrix movie. If it was called super cool action flick, it would have been great. But it's following one of the best films ever made. You know, sure. so expectations yeah. are something, you know, if you can harness those and just create small victories every day with that perspective, then it's it's pretty bad. We always say that if you keep telling yourself that you can't, you can't, right? Right. So if you keep telling yourself that you can, you can. So right. it doesn't matter what you're trying to do, right. whether it's going out for a run or trying to lose weight. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. So the the uh, it's, you you mentioned an, an interesting thing too uh, around football, around American football, yeah. and how you know they use their data in order to you know groom their players into right. you know that what data is used for judo in order for you to get an upper edge. In your, yeah. on your so there's a, there's a couple things that are really interesting that came up recently. So I was running a full-time private dojo in the north end of Toronto, a, a big facility, a uh, number of national medalists. And I was writing this blog, um, not like a standard blog of why is judo cool, sort of like trying to get to more interesting conversations of development of high-performance sport. In that process, um, there was a company based out of Sweden because my my takes weren't like the typical takes. So this company based out of Sweden called Athlete Analyzer. And what they were trying to do was make it so that you could get baseball data out of judo. So you record your matches and then you would tag the actions in the matches. Okay. So at the end of a four minute match, you could say I did 12 techniques and uh, three were good attacks and one was a score. And then you put enough matches together and all of a sudden you have a sample size of your matches. At the same time, 
there's a gentleman out of um, Italy, Emilio Centraccio, and what he does is he does the entire tour, the entire international tour, and he takes that he takes every match and analyzes every attack, every penalty, every step up, every piece of data that at the moment we think would be beneficial. What grip they had when they did those techniques, right or left-handed. Um, and he and he puts out all of that information on a website called Judo Data. So if you make an account in Judo Data, you can pull like you can find out Jessica Klimkate's success rate with her throws, uh, world champ, Olympic medalist, or Shohei Ono, two-time Olympic champion. We can look at the success rate of the throws, what the throws were, if the person was right or left-handed. So we're getting to this point now in Judo where people are being like, we can we can take. Data. There's a lot of data that can be had where before yeah. people would just go, no, you can't do that. Judo's too unique. Yeah. Um, and and uh, athlete analyzer and a media are proving that wrong. Stupid question for you. Can you use AI for uh, judo data today? Uh, probably. I'm just I'm not that savvy. <laughs> <laughs> I was you know? just thinking of yeah. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure there's a way. There, if not yet, there will be a way that I'm sure an AI would be able to take that data at least. Yeah. For sure. Like I mean, that's what's coming. Yeah. Pretty soon the AI will be doing the matches too. But <laughs> until then. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that's super that, cool. That's one thing I've noticed too, especially as of late with, you know, Josh recommended me reading Big Data Baseball. And I, I think I've always noticed it about judo. We talk about tradition a lot because it's a martial art. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's all these traditions that we follow, but the data is also traditional. Like when, when I was younger, it was, well, what did what did Jay, Jason do to you when you fought him? Well, he overhanded me. And like the data was just like purely like, uh, this is what I kind of remember. Here's there was it, no yeah. video, mm-hmm. or or if there was video, it was on your dad's camcorder, and the Shady. end of the fight was like this. Yeah, because yeah, he cheered. <laughs> you couldn't see it. So now, you know, I I try to talk to a lot of the athletes and go, even on the on the low end before we're at competition. Okay, so we just went over technique, Taitoshi. We've been working on it the last few days. Okay, what's step one? And they're like, well, you move your foot. No, no, no. What's step one? And I, I like force them to think, and then eventually one of the kids goes, "Oh, you need your judo grip." Yeah, you need your judo grip. So like, how can we think about everything systematically, and then take that further into what you're talking about on having those plays in judo? Right. So how do you approach, like echoing that to your students, be like, know your plays because the lazy thing in judo is, well, oh, just do your judo. Right. So right. how do you take that? And it's very easy as a coach to say that. Mm-hmm. You're good. Like, and, and this is the other thing where, you know, sample size is important. Our eyes lie and we're cheering for people. You work with someone, you've worked with them for five years, you want them to be successful. You genuinely are working to make them more successful, but you're cheering for them. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to be objective. The larger the sample size, the more objective we can be, and then we can adjust accordingly. So what I, the thing that I talk to athletes about a lot, and I've been harping on it since I got here, which is very recently, but still, is all that I want them to do is plan their first exchange. Before I say go, before I say hejime, I need you to know what technique you want to utilize and how you want to achieve that. How are you going to get to the position to apply that technique? And if you only plan the first exchange, then we've got a good first step. And once you get in the practice of planning your first exchange, you can start planning your second and your third. And also, I don't need your playbook to be an NFL playbook yet. If all your playbook is a stop-and-go pattern by your receiver or a baseball player, all I want you to do is bunt. Okay, cool. Just keep bunting, Mm -hmm. and then we'll find out when it worked and didn't work. And then once people start adjusting and you get in the, the behavior and the pattern, then we go, okay, let's try 
a second play. They adjusted to this one and let's get the second play. So the most I can say to the kids is like, literally tell me the throw you want to do and how you're going to get there. We've started planning now. And every exchange, do that play. If you have to, every single exchange, do that play. And then we can take that. Was it successful or not? Why not? It wasn't successful because I screwed up. It actually would have worked. Cool, now we, we know, do it again. Mm -hmm. Oh, it wasn't successful because he had a terrible grip. Oh, cool, fix it. Whereas if we just play judo, I say, what happened? He threw me six times, okay, and? Well, you know, he's really good, okay. So what do we take from that? It's really hard to take. It's really hard to adjust when you're not really cognizant of what went right or wrong when it's too large. Technique, right? It's all around your technique. And it's fun because it's almost like practice. And you know, the, the famous Alan Iverson right. interview, practice. You were talking about practice, man. Anyways, uh, so, you know, it it's, it's all comes down to practice, you yeah. know, by the sounds of it. But um, that, that whole thing around the way that you use data and uh, insert it is, it, it, it's, I love that stuff. And it's very, very cool to hear that you can take something out of baseball data, right. football data, and use it into some a different... Completely, uh, let's face it, judo and baseball are two different uh, yep. worlds apart. Mm -hmm. yep. like worlds apart. Yep. And uh, the, the football necessarily isn't because uh, the greatest quarterback in the NFL, Tua Tagovailoa, he uh, learned how to fall. Yeah, started doing great falls because of all hey, the I'll give you guys that. Hey, Josh, yeah, ask me. Also, ask to be me. honest, I, uh, I haven't watched in a long time, but I grew up a Dolphins fan, Dan Marino. OJ McDuffie. OJ McDuffie. My guy. Just when I was starting to like. Do you remember? <laughs> Do you remember the random running back that had an NBA player's name, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Hundred percent. I have his rookie card. Oh, really? Yeah. Absolutely. The worst trade the Dolphins ever made was when they traded Wes Welker to, to New England. To pick you, why you. would you trade? The, that was the best trade they you ever made. You lead the league in receptions, and you trade this guy for a second and round pick, that and then he becomes a Hall of Famer. Josh, ask. Ask, oh. ask Mr. Cooper who won Sunday night's football game. I'm pretty sure it was the Dolphins. It was the Dolphins, yeah. as a matter of fact. And, uh, hey, uh, uh, for those people listening, did I is a Patriots fan. And did I, for those people listening, <laughs> did I, JB, or did I not say, well, if we played the whole game instead of the last five minutes, we might have been in the fight. I was if, we're gonna look, if we're going to play off a shoulda, coulda, wouldas, I'd be, a, I'd be, we wouldn't be just sitting here together. I'll put it to you that way. This is true. <laughs> this is true. So bringing it back to so, not shoulda, coulda, wouldas. So anyways, Josh, can you tell us about uh, a little bit about how you founded Matsura? Uh, yeah. So basically, um, as a business. And or what it is too. Yeah. yeah. So Matsura Canada is the biggest supplier of judo uniforms in the country. It's now expanded that they're. Um, now expanded into the United States, and then I believe they're going to be launching um, in Senegal, I believe, as well. Oh, wow. um, it's originally a Dutch company, so we got exclusive distribution rights for Canada. A good friend of mine, Sergio Pessoa, who went to the London Rio Olympics, uh, him and I started the company together. We had a, he had a club in Montreal, and I had a club in Toronto. We just weren't happy with, with the performance we were getting from the suppliers. So we started with a very small budget and just said, initially the plan was let's bring in some keys for our clubs. And then it was like, well, we need to order more keys than that. Okay, so let's do a small distribution in Canada. So we started there and we started just going like, okay, what do we have to do to, to help sell this product to people? Bring it at a price point that's reasonable. Judo is a super humble sport. It's about being cheap. Like I know the kids at the uh, Y in Saskatoon, it's a very reasonable fee to be a part of Judo. And my own family, when, when I started Judo, I'm the baby of five kids. 
Uh, three of us did judo, so it was 15 bucks a month for one. The family plan was 25 bucks a month okay. for as many people as you want. So judo is a humble sport that's supposed to be for everyone. Like that's sort of the whole idea. So we wanted to get away from one uniform being three hundred dollars. Sure. And we started selling them at about one hundred and sixty-five, somewhere in that point, for the very competitive geese. This isn't your base model. This okay. is like the most high uh, IGF certified geese for international events. So that's where we started. Is like let's bring that. And then the second thing was okay, what other service can we bring to get people on board? So um, one of the things was let's get. You know, it's, it's great to celebrate your own dojo, so we wanted to make sure that people could get their, their club logo embroidered. So how can we do that cheaply? So Sergio found a really great uh, embroidery shop where the digitization was super cheap, the embroidery rate was cheap. So when you order your geese, we can embroider and ship it right to you. So now you don't have to wait, ship it to someone else, and then we try to do it in, in a concise period of time. And then the other leg was, how do we make it that people want to celebrate that they love judo? Because we've done judo our whole lives. We love it. And historically, it's not cool streetwear. Mm-hmm. So sort of try to bring a streetwear aspect to it. That was our starting point um, with a very modest budget. I was doing the design work with zero design uh, background. <laughs> and so that's where we sort of started from and grew from there. And the, the company just took off very, very quickly. And now, by far, I'd say like three to one to any other brand. That's what you'll see at any judo wow. tournament across the country. And you do also do streetwear then too, like yeah. We started doing baseball caps, and now they do they do a lot of um, rash guards. What you wear under your gi or surfers wear. They do a lot of rash guards. They do team track outfits. Uh, they got in. We also before I sold my part of the company, we got into distribution of mats that you fight on. Same thing, trying to get mats at a reasonable price point. Uh, he's gotten into fitness gear. He's gotten into yoga. It's yeah, wow. it's it's a big company. It's Super it's awesome. Cool. So it started as a part time gig for two people, and now it's uh, six or seven full time staff. Well, wow, that's that's a great story. I mean, then that just starts from a small business, you know, and now you, it's basically international, and yeah. you know, that's that's a great story. And just a, and just an awesome learning experience, you know, like yeah. we came in just being two judo bums, sure. and like we want a better product. Okay, well, you know, like anything, and I sort of think about this all the time. It's like value where there isn't. We saw that there was a problem. So we wanted to fix that, not because we wanted our dream wasn't to be judo gi suppliers, right. but it's like we want to fix the problem that we see, and because that's what we went to do, the market just opened up because this was a service people needed. You know, yeah. Uh, some of the things we tried, for instance, I like tattoos, as you can probably tell. So when you know different ideas of marketing things. So for the embroidery, when we launched it, we said tattoo your gi. You know, it's permanent, yeah. that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, that's the coolest idea ever. No one cares. <laughs> that, that went away in six months. Like nobody. We, you know. we have never done that with any of the ideas we've had. Absolutely. Right? So, but I thought, oh, that's the coolest thing ever. You know, no, nobody cared. You know, there's like so there's a there's a lot of things to yeah. learn. Like things that you think are cool and interesting. People are like, yeah, that's yeah. not interesting to me. Just embroider my gi, bro. Yeah. So what did you what did you learn from you know starting a small business like that? And uh, you know what what would you tell somebody who's starting a small business and you know going into a a market that you, you know, you, you know, but you don't really have much experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd say the biggest thing was like really genuinely trying to find out what the customer needs, like building a relationship with customers. I used to sell clothes a lot in a clothing store okay. and you know, there's, you know, there's the, the dirty car salesman idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I would sell clothes in a clothing store, my goal was not to sell you everything off the rack. You came into a clothing store because you required clothes. So let's start there. You require this. You need it. You really want to get something. So I'm not trying to sell you everything off the rack. I'm trying to get you something that you go home with 
excited and proud that you found and bought. And if I'm able to do that, you'll come back. Yeah. Whereas if I sell you something where I'm like, yeah, that looks great. And then you go home and your ex or your friend or your wife or whoever looks at you and goes, what are you wearing? And they're embarrassed. <laughs> they don't trust you. You know, trust is a really important thing. So genuinely finding out what they need and what they want and trying to supply that and genuinely wanting to help people. Like I think that's what's sort of lost in all that is these are service industries. I want to provide something that you want. Yeah. And if I do that and I find out what you genuinely want, it is a good relationship that way. Friends are, are built that way. Our first big customer was Mr. Suda. Uh, he runs a really great club in Abbotsford and he's a great guy and he used to train with his daughter and I'd known him for many years and he just wanted to support us. So he put in his first order and we couldn't, we couldn't even fulfill it for real because there was geese in the cheapest quality that were of a large size. We only ordered five and he wanted 10 because his dojo was like 350 members. So we went, okay, this isn't good. So we supplied as much of the order as we could, took payment, used money to buy more geese to bring them in to ship to him. Because we're like, we have to fulfill this order. We can't let him down like he's gone out of his way. So like, we didn't make any money on half of his order. But it was like, we need to supply him with the keys that we said we would at that rate. For sure. And then they've worked with Matsuda Canada ever since. And it was just, I already knew him, but like genuinely wanting to help and him wanting to help us and just a really great relationship. So I'd say like build those relationships. It's not phony. It's not fake. You're not trying to build fake relationships with people. Those relationships can be a, a really long time and you're supplying a product. But um, yeah, I, I'd say that's the biggest thing is really try to connect to people in a genuine way and people will recognize yeah. that. We talk about relationship selling all the time and right. how important it is to maintain that relationship and, you know, build that relationship and trust, you know, and, right. and you know, you talked about the, the greasy car salesman. Right. Those, those guys really don't care. Like, you right. know, you're... You buy the car and they see the Sayonara and you never hear from the guy ever again, right? right. We're exact opposite. You know, our mindset is that, you know, we, if you're my customer, what can I do tomorrow to make you feel even better about your right. purchase yesterday, right? right? And that's, you know, that's kind of what you just described there. I have a stupid really question around that. How, how often does a gi wear out? Well, it depends on the age. A lot of kids, it's just really heavy cotton. So most kids grow out of them. Okay. Um, when you're an adult, they start to break down, especially the pants, because we're quite brutal with it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's good to get a, a gear or two every year, probably. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I need to do that myself, because okay. I just blew out a pair of pants. Okay, yeah. there you go. Thanks to my But yeah, it's very heavy cotton, so they last a while. But, you know, the other thing is, is over time, it's a white cotton. So over time, it starts to stain and things just naturally. Sure. So, yeah, probably every every year, get a gear or two, probably. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Josh with sport or passion really whatever an individual is doing whoever's listening to this in your journey you were the competitor uh-huh. you're the coach you were the business founder the business side of it you were the anal- uh the analyst for olympics so you've went down four or five plus pathways right. just on you know the little old sport of judo you know and that was maybe because you had that vision which i think is evident but how could somebody, you know, in soccer or yeah. something, find those pathways? Is it I, so? Funny enough, uh, growing up, my dad had an expression. So I went to school for sound engineering, which is part of the reason I ended up landing the CBC gig. I went to school for sound engineering because when I my goal was to be an Olympic athlete, and I fell short significantly. And then it was like, what am I going to do? 
and everybody's always telling me you need to do something else. You can't do judo as a profession. It's humble. It's mostly recreational. Um, that's not your thing. So I went to school for sound engineering. And when I came out of that school, I was trying to build uh, studio work. And at the same time, I was getting offered like small little judo programs. Like, oh, I'll teach this a couple days a week. We'll give you 40 bucks. And so I'm trying to build a studio. And I don't know the music industry. I know music. But I don't know the industry. So I have all these connections. I'm living in Toronto. I'm not from there. And so at one point I was like, do I keep doing this and trying to spend money to build a studio or do I just start teaching judo a little more, which I love and I've always loved. I just thought it wasn't possible. And the world told me, you know, grow up, there's no job for you here. So it, that sort of led me to doing judo more often. So I started teaching and I'm teaching at club and I'm teaching another club and I'm teaching all the time. And my plan wasn't to do all of these different things in judo. My hope was just, realistically, my goal was being an Olympic athlete and then maybe coach, you know, and that didn't work. So it was just like, okay, I guess I'll just start coaching. And then I was like, well, I really like it. So I'll coach more. So all of a sudden I'm teaching at two to three dojos, six days a week. And then again, it's like things come up. And, and when I went to school for sound engineering, I remember a couple of years later, my dad saying, like talking to my dad and just going, ah, you know, it was, what a waste. It was so much money. And he said, hey, it's a tool in your box. You never know when you're going to use it. You never know when that might become valuable. So me doing that leads to um, eventually me making videos, teaching videos. Some of them get 25,000 views on YouTube. That leads to a company in Sweden hiring me to, do, to help build their program, Athlete Analyzer, and promote it. That leads to all of this information about me, blogs that I've written, uh, YouTube channels that I've done, where then the CBC contacts me and says, we'd like you to do the Olympics. We've looked at a bunch of your stuff online. We think it's great. We'd love you to come in and audition. So now I go into a recording studio and I'm comfortable in a recording studio. I'm not comfortable commentating yet, but I talk a lot and I'm comfortable in a recording studio. So all of a sudden, unexpectedly, I'm commentating the Olympics. And then with all of that experience, so now I'm an Olympic commentator, I've coached this long and I started this company. Now there's an interesting role that opens up in the Northwest Territories to be the executive director. So then that leads me there. Then after a few years of really changing the way that operation worked, then an uh, option comes to Saskatchewan. And here we are. So it, it wasn't a plan for me to do those things. It was just like, I'm, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm like stubborn to a fault. Yeah. It's like, it wasn't me trying to prove the world wrong exactly. It's just like partly desperation and just loving it and mm -hmm. just going, I'm just going to keep doing this. And if it doesn't work, well, at least I, tr I, I, I just, for whatever reason, I just didn't give up. Like I wasn't, I don't even know. I was probably listening and sitting at home going, this is a waste of my time, yeah. but I don't know what else to do. So I'm just going to keep doing it. And at some point I ended up having a career. First of all, stubborn is a, is a theme here yes. in, our, in, our, in our last little while. Yeah. Number two, Drake, if you're listening to this, we have a great sound engineer that just needs some part time gigs. And he's from outside and the six. Yeah, he's from <laughs> the six. So, I mean, let's, uh, yeah. let's hook this well, up. And a big part of it then is just being in the game. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. That's so many people uh, on the Olympic side. This quote just popped into mind. Usain Bolt, you know. I train, you know, the, in those four-year cycles for nine seconds. Some right. people go work two months, don't see results, not give up. Right. But it's like if you love it, judo in this case, and you stay in the game and you keep finding different ways, you can find success. And we see that lots in judo, especially on the Olympic side, for whatever reason, I think it's just naturally because of high school. We graduate when we're 18. And if 
in Canada, you're not going to Lethbridge or Montreal to the regional training center and the national center in Quebec. You're done at 18. Right. Why? We, we don't hit our athletic peak until we're 25 mm-hmm. or older. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah, Olympics at 18 is awesome if you're the point oh oh one percent but yeah, right. at 28, um, I know Josh can rifle off some folks that went to their first one at 28. So, yeah. and it goes back to what you said at the start, setting those expectations. So yeah, and that's another connection that I make to baseball all the yeah. time. Like when people think, they think Michael Jordan, they think LeBron James, they think you need to be that player at this age or in life or in careers. You need to be at this position at this age and you're wrong. Objectively, you're wrong. So as an example, um, a tennis player from Switzerland, one of the best tennis players ever. That guy wanted to be a soccer player until he was 16. His parents... Rafael Nadal? No. Uh, He's Spanish. The Swiss one. Anyways, this guy was a soccer player until 16. He became one of the best tennis players ever. Um, Jose Batista was not an everyday player until 27. At 29, he's a league MVP. Josh Donaldson, not an everyday player until 27. At 29, he's a league MVP. Drafted as a catcher. Yeah. And and the amount of baseball players. How many baseball players are really good at 24? Almost none. Almost none. Almost none. In hockey, the reference that I love is goalies. Yeah. They're terrible until they're 26. 29, yeah. Like, yeah. at 26, they start to... Even Flurry, who was drafted first overall, wasn't very good. Nope. These guys weren't good. Donovan Bailey, I think the greatest sport in... The greatest moment in Canadian sport history, in my opinion. Such a redemption to win that and, and set the world record doing it. 1993, he didn't go to the world championships. Wasn't on the team. Uh, he was born in, like, 68, I think. Um, so... He's about 25, and he didn't go. 95 worlds, he wins. 96 Olympics, he sets the world record. Yeah, there you go. So, and in running, the most competitive thing, everybody that can knows how, right? So, uh, setting these timelines, and I also saw a piece of information. It was about um, startups. When we think startup, we think 19-year-old kid that's incredibly successful. The percentages... Uh, the average startup that's successful, the person that launches it, is something like 39 years old for it to be successful. But then even more importantly, the person who starts it at 39 compared to the person that started it at 22, not only are you more likely to be successful starting it at 39, but you will also generate greater revenue. So not only are you more successful if you start it later with all the experience that you have, but you will be more successful. So this idea that startups are 21-year-olds and you miss the boat, it's like... What's the data for 49-year-olds? Uh, <laughs> even better. Even better. But it's, it's in that, you, I, I would say, without knowing, like that we're talking averages. for yeah. So that means in your 40s is for sure more success on average than in your 20s. Yeah. Of course it is. Yeah. Like, I think of myself at 22 and I think of myself now and I have not perfected at all. But I'm a far more articulate, well thought out, more planned um, less emotional, more rational person than I was in my 20s, that's for sure. I, I would think of it uh, further as well, Josh, the, the, your network is bigger too. Yep. You know, you're connected to more people, you're connected to more, maybe more powerful people, right? Yep. You know, there's always that that connection within your network that takes to the next level as well, right? If you right. want to use it. Yeah, and more confident in who you are, and right. what you really want, and what you want to do. Like the same thing, you know, the university system that we have, uh, is difficult at times because you're, it's almost like you're telling people at 18 they need to do it for the rest of their life. No, you don't. Right. In fact, you shouldn't. Right. And you definitely won't. Right. No matter what it is, even if you go into medicine and you're like, I want to do this, 
okay, well, you'll probably end up in a different area of medicine, even if you stay in medicine. Exactly. Like, that's just how it is. Like, we need to learn and grow. That's another one of my dad's expressions. He says, if you're not learning, you're dying. You know, and, and I absorb that in some way that I'm just constantly trying to find more information because being stagnant is just not fun, you know? 100%. Oh. So. Even, you know, on the judo side of it, you have kids, especially we had, it's the start of the new season and a bunch of, oh, Sensei Greg, like, you have a black belt, does that mean you're the best ever? Well, no, it just means I've been learning longer. Right. The first regional training, Josh was there, and, like, the simplest maneuver for when your leg is double hooked. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> kind of a mute point for most people listening, but literally he bent his knee, he bent his leg to get out of it. I audibly was like, you're kidding. <laughs> it was that 20 years of judo, and that was the answer. Right. Maybe I knew it. Maybe I did it subconsciously. But seeing that, I went, man, I overthink stuff sometimes. And we all do, especially you know, in uh, disciplines that have such vast techniques or in business world. Every, it's always overthinking. Uh, usually, if you keep it simple right. and you stay to your plan... It'll work out, but you can always learn new things no matter where you're at. Yeah, for to sure. go back to the original point. No, I, I I love all that stuff. I love how you connect all that stuff. That's that's to me is is brilliant. Like that, I, I love that. That's to look at out. You know, you, you're looking outside the box at finding a competitive edge somewhere, right? And you know, and putting two and two together and actually making five out of it. It's it's really really cool. It's a, that that to me is. Yeah, and it's, you know, as a coach, I want those athletes to be successful. So what I tell them all the time is the same thing. Like, again, there's so many ways that we can look at different, that I look at baseball. Like, when we think of judo and people think, okay, I'm 20 and I really want to get carded, funded by the government to be an international judoka. I, I need to do that. I need to do that now. Okay, so again, let's look at baseball. What happens in baseball? Lots of players aren't drafted in high school. They end up going to college. So when they're going to college, they're not a full-time professional athlete. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, they're doing lots of classes because a small percentage are going to make it. So same thing in judo. Instead of thinking, I need to get to a grand slam at 20. No, you don't. And in fact, the distraction of other things can be helpful. You know, I'm the type of like mindset that if I get too focused on a thing, it can be problematic. Mm -hmm. You start to worry too much and then you're not sleeping at night and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So when you're 19, 20, 21, no, go to school. Mm -hmm. Think of judo as your part-time thing that you're passionate about and driven about, and you don't have to make it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Just like college players in baseball. Again, it's like push everything back and stop thinking you need to arrive today. So when you're doing your schooling and you just keep training and you go, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm going to plan for one event this year because I have a limited budget. I'll plan for one event this year. I'll really prepare for it. And now I'm super prepared to perform. That's what I would prefer rather than be like, I'm going to spend all this money that I don't really have and take my shot at one year and go to a bunch of events at 20 when I'm not ready. So I just look at baseball again. and That's exactly where I come to it from is like, how do they do it? How do the people do it that aren't superstars at 19? What about the guys that aren't Vladdy Jr. when they were 16? How about all those guys? Oh, tons of them. Go to school. Keep doing your school. Keep training on the side. You don't have to give it up. You haven't even reached like, I didn't stop growing until I was 21. Then you start filling out. So you're not even close to the musculature that you're going to be. So what business would you say if there was somebody listening to this who's doing judo while going to university and taking, I don't care what they're taking, mm -hmm. to be honest. What business within judo would you say that there's an opportunity for somebody to, to get into? Oh, I think there's, there's tons. Um, one, there's coaching. Obviously, coaching sure. is a big thing. The other thing is, is administratively, the more people that we get involved in doing judo, the more way that we find... 
when I was running the Northwest Territories, I didn't want to be an organization that just looked for a government grant. I wanted to be a service provider. So when I was there, um, we started providing judo in a lot of schools, um, to a number of schools. And the more we expanded that, the more revenue we're generating because we're providing service. So we went from an executive director and one coach to multiple coaches and an assistant to the executive director, that kind of thing. So you have, when you can start developing and generating revenue, there's lots of different ways to do it. So you could do that administratively without teaching judo at all. Mm -hmm. You can do that as a developer of coaches. You could do that as, um, I mean, judo is practiced in 204 countries. So maybe it's not going to make money now or it's not going to make money in the short term. But if you really, really love it, there's podcasting formats. There's blogging formats. Like there's a lot of ways that we could promote this sport. I still think there's a market for swag that isn't touched. Like everybody in the world wants to look cool wearing stuff they look good. Right. There's a lot of money in marketing of baseball teams. You know, like yeah. the Blue Jays gear looks pretty cool lots of times. Like you yeah. want to wear that. So I think there's a there. I'm not smart enough to have them all, but there's. I think there's a ton of areas. And the more that we look at it professionally or treat it professionally, as you could say, the more time and energy you're going to put in in an efficient way. And when you do that. You're not just making yourself money. You're getting more people to practice judo. Yeah. And one thing about judo, we learn how to fall. This is one of the most important skills in life. The more people that do judo on the planet Earth, the better the world is. And I really believe that because if you fall, walk into the store, and you break your hip, and you're older, maybe you don't walk to the store anymore. So now you become less active. So doing those things and getting more people to understand the beauty of judo, how fantastic it is, and the more people we get doing it, now it's more active people, it's more connected, it's a better community that way. Mm -hmm. So it's not entirely a selfish act to look at it professionally, try to develop it and find, find your niche, but you don't have to search for it. Mm -hmm. Like it might come. Um, one thing I like to do is just go for long walks. I don't know what I need on that walk. It might be a relief from stress or it might be a creative solution to an answer. And I just go for a walk. And when I get home, it usually answered the question for me. So that's one thing that I find is like, find your thing of, of like, just work at it, see what you love and be open-minded. Like in judo, it's humble. Anyone can teach you. And so when I was a kid, my, my parents would always say that too. Like, you know, anyone can teach you judo. Don't be so pompous that you know better than them. Mm -hmm. So a couple of years ago, you know, 25 years in judo, I had a gentleman that had done judo for a couple of years as a teen. He's now in his 50s. He asked me a question about a problem he was having in judo. Him asking that question made me think about it in a different way to come up with a solution. Now, he didn't teach me by telling me how to do a technique. He taught me by asking the right question. And that's teaching too. So to me, it's like just keep working at things and be open that when someone asks you something, that might give you a solution or answer that you may not have known was even in you. Mm -hmm. And it changed the way that I teach judo. That one question changed mm -hmm. the way that I teach judo. So I think, I think there's a, you know, it's, it's a, I like to say there's a thousand ways to skin an onion, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, there's so many ways that you can do things. And uh, there, I, I think it's short-sighted often that we just look at here's the only way to get somewhere. Because if that's the case, I would not be working in judo or I'd be really, really broke. <laughs> if it was only you become Olympic athlete, I'd be like, okay, cool. Right. I guess I'll start digging holes or something. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's the love thing. it. So anybody listening to this really, you know, there's a, there's a lesson to be learned here about, uh, you know, taking your, your, whatever you're good at 
and applying it to what you want to do, go ahead and try and do it. And if you, so what if you fall? It doesn't really right. matter. Get back up and do it again, right? right? And and the second message is everybody should be taking judo in order to fall so they don't break yeah. their hip. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And the third one, make sure you have the network and the right people around you, right? Yeah, that's right. Having that support system, having that team, you know? Yeah, you don't need everybody around you always pumping your tires, but no. you need them giving you that constructive criticism, asking you the right questions. Teaching, coaching. Teach, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Josh, yeah. pleasure having you on. Um, you can find him on the mats across Saskatchewan, but uh, anywhere else the High Nation can connect with you, Josh? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think in Saskatchewan, it's probably the easiest way. We're going to be releasing a lot of uh, videos, like teaching videos, yep. for mostly internally for Saskatchewan. So when I go into a club, because... I travel all over the province and I teach uh, little seminars and do club visits and regional trainings. But in order to connect those clubs better and have some visual reference, we're going to be putting little videos out for sure on YouTube to give visual reference, but people can check those out. And hopefully in uh, less than a year, I'll be on air again doing the Paris Olympic Games. Do you have an Instagram or something like that, Josh? Uh, Yeah, I think it's... What is it, Josh Egan Judo or something like that? <laughs> okay, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, something like that. Uh, we like we like humble guys yeah. for sure. So before we go, I'll, I'll, I'll this is my audition for you, Josh. Right? <laughs> okay. All right. So <clears throat> here's the pitch. High drive hits it deep. It is out of here. Posey with the slam put the Giants up eight four. What do you think? Yeah, that's pretty good. Oh, nice. Yeah. I'd hire you. I have no no criticism except a good job. <laughs> Josh, if you, if you get into judo, I might lose a job. Awesome. Hi, Nation. We're out.